Please open your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5. I don't need to be long today, and I hope I will not be. There is much that we could cover, but I hope I can cover enough, and we can read together the precious words of God, and I can give you the right sense of them that will convict and convince and convert your hearts and my heart together. Isaiah chapter 5, I will read the first seven verses. Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my well-beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it and also made a wine press therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes and it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, And men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. And now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up, and break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down, and I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned nor digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry. This is the word of the Lord. I hope that before the Lord Jesus Christ, who called me to this office of being a teacher, that I will be faithful to God's Word and never make it less severe than it should be or more severe than it is. But the Lord God our Father is severe toward His children when they neglect the great blessings that He has given them, when they respond with wild grapes instead of good grapes. Wild grapes are sour, bitter grapes. The ones that you would find sometimes in the woods that have not been cultivated nor germinated to produce a sweet, pleasant, luscious variety. And when you bite it in your mouth and it releases its unpleasant juices, as the Bible tells us, it sets your teeth on edge. Have you ever bitten into something that sets your teeth on edge? It is so bitter in your mouth. These are the wild grapes, and they set the Lord's teeth on edge. In this metaphor of a vineyard, this is Israel. And the Lord is the owner of the vineyard. He's the well-beloved. He's the well-beloved that had a pleasant hill. 
And he did everything that could be done for that vineyard to bring forth luscious grapes for a luscious produce of the vineyard. But instead it brought forth wild grapes. And he tells us what he's going to do to his own vineyard. The Lord shall judge his people. Deuteronomy chapter 32, Hebrews chapter 10. These are the Lord's people. We exist, brother, you and I exist, sister, we exist to fear and love the Lord our God in word and deed. What kind of grapes are you to Him? If you can take that home with great sobriety and conviction, then we will have accomplished a good thing today. What kind of grapes are you to the God of heaven? When He looks for the produce from your life, And all that he's done for you, do you bring forth sweet, luscious, delicious grapes? Or do you bring forth wild grapes that set his teeth on edge and causes him to want to destroy his vineyard? Meaning, to blow against you in your life and to eat you up and to have you not prune you, not dig you, not bless you, to withhold his blessing from you until you wither away. This is the word of the Lord. This is what Isaiah delivered to the people of God. This is what Moses delivered to the people of God. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Malachi, and many others. This is for us to take heed to today. The blessings of God, which are many, and they're abundant in all aspects of our lives, bring obligations. They bring an obligation to love the Lord in response. And they bring consequences when we don't. Because He's measuring us All the time as to what we give back to him for what he's done for us. Couples have sat and agreed together that they would adopt an underprivileged child. One without the opportunities and blessings of, say, the United States of America. So they they often adopt a foreign child. Or even within the United States of America, they will adopt a child that is underprivileged. Maybe its parents have forsaken it. And they want to give it an opportunity and blessings and privileges and love and security and hope. When that child grows up and is old enough to recognize what transaction took place that gave them that home, and that child despises its parents, disobeys the family rules, shames the family, that is a horrible thing. We all can we can relate to that to some degree, and some of you among us can relate to it in a better degree. But it's a terrible thing. But we do the same thing when the Lord looks at us as His vineyard, when He's looking for a great harvest of grapes, and we bring forth wild grapes. Verse 4 is what I want you to remember from Isaiah chapter 5. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? He found a pleasant hill. What was the land of Canaan called? The land... Flowing with milk and honey. When they found a cluster of grapes in Canaan, did they bring it back in a number 10 bag? Or did they have to put it on a staff between two chosen mighty men to carry that cluster of grapes back to show Israel, this is what the vineyards look like in Canaan. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done? He gave them a land flowing with milk and honey. Did they have to build their houses? 
did they have to go to a furniture store to find the furniture to decorate their houses? No, because the Bible tells us the houses were filled with all goodly things. Did they have to dig wells? Digging wells by hand is a difficult project. Digging wells by hand in a dry country is a very difficult project. Were the wells already dug? Were the vineyards already planted and mature? Were the cities already walled? The Lord gave them a pleasant hill. Then he hedged them about. Did he protect them from their enemies? He put in the hearts of all their enemies, not even to be interested in their property, three times a year when the men would go to Shiloh or Jerusalem to worship the Lord. He hedged them about. They would stand still some days and see great military victories without ever pulling a sword. Because he hedged them. He protected them. He put a pillar of fire between them and their enemies at night and a pillar of cloud by daytime. He would send hailstones. He protected them. He hedged them. As it tells us in verse 2, he fenced it. And he calls it a hedge in verse 5. And he gathered out the stones thereof. He took away every unpleasant thing. He gave them the very best that he could possibly give them. You get, away, you get rid of stones so that you can cultivate land for the best possible use. And it can't hide weeds, trees, and other things that would grow up to obstruct the vineyard. He planted a t- uh, the choicest vine in it. He had blessed that nation. Have you ever looked at the years of the 75 that went down into Egypt and 215 years they, late, later they came out 600,000 men? That's a pretty choice vine. Find some little genealogical program that will generate 600,000 men in 215 years from 75 souls. That's a birth rate that can't be touched because it's the blessing of God. They grew so rapidly and they grew so prosperously. He gave them all the wealth of Egypt when they left Egypt for past wages. They, they plundered and spoiled the land. The Lord did all that for Israel. What more could have been done in it? He gave them His Word. The Bible tells us in Psalm 147 that Israel had the oracles of God. What advantage, what advantage has the Jew? Paul would ask in Romans chapter 3. Much every way. Chiefly because that unto them were committed... The oracles of God. They had the Bible. They had the true teachers of God. They had the priesthood. They had the worship of God. They had prophets sent to them over and over again to remind them of their duties. What more could have been done to my vineyard? It's a rhetorical question. Nothing more could have been done. They were the most blessed people on earth. As Deuteronomy 32 verses 7 through 14 attempts to describe. As Psalm 74, Psalm 78, Psalm 106 seeks to describe. What more could have been done to my vineyard? But when I looked for grapes, it brought forth wild grapes. What we want to do today, shortly, simply, is to find out, does the Lord really measure us to see if we're giving back to Him proportionately to what He's done for us? And what does it mean to be good grapes? And what does it mean to be... Wild grapes. We want to learn a few things, a few simple things. We want the Word of God to teach us and the Spirit of God to teach us. We want to go out of this place, hopefully already preparing in our hearts and minds, I want to be a better cluster of grapes for the Lord God of heaven than I was 12 hours ago.
That's what we want to do. It's so simple. From a positive perspective, we should rejoice and be exceeding glad for all God has done for us. We should think about what He's done for your vineyard. Make His vineyard your life. Make His vineyard your family. Make His vineyard this church. Make His vineyard, in a sense, this nation. What more could He have done? And when He looked for grapes, what kind of grapes is it bringing forth in your life, in your marriage, in your family, in this church, in this nation? That's the question we must ask ourselves. That's what we've got to examine ourselves by. What kind of grapes am I to the God of heaven after all he's done for me? From a negative perspective, we should tremble in fear because he is going to tear us apart. He is going to tear your family apart. He is going to tear your marriage apart. He is going to tear your life apart. And he will tear this church apart if we do not bring forth good grapes. And what a pleasure to bring forth good grapes. Do we have a rich daddy that adopted us? Do we have a good daddy that adopted us? Do we have a daddy that really loves us more than anyone else loves us? Do you know what the Bible says? Be therefore followers of God as dear children. Do you know what that means? Because God loves you so much, love Him back with the love He's showing towards you. Be followers of God as dear children. You're dearly beloved. That expression is used in the Bible. We are dearly beloved. You say, no one ever loved me. Who cares if no one on earth loved you? There's a reason. There's nothing lovable about you. But the God... That's true of all of us. But the God of heaven loves us. He's our Abba Father. What more could have been done to you, for you, with you, your family, this church, this nation, than He has done? He deserves great grapes. Are you giving the Lord of heaven wonderful grapes? What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. His expectation is what we would expect of an adopted child. A thrilled child every day of its life. Thank you, Mom and Dad, for adopting me. No one else cared about me. I was left alone, but you adopted me. You took me up. You raised me. You changed my diapers. You got me an education. You put a roof over my head. You gave me opportunity. You showed me the truth. That's what should happen. You know, we fantasize sometimes about doing it. Those who have done it have found that it's not quite as easy because of the wickedness of the human flesh. But we fantasize. Sherry and I have. What a pleasure it would be to adopt someone from a foreign country and give them all the opportunities and privileges that the United States has to offer. Plus all the privileges and opportunities that the gospel has to offer. And in your mind, you're thinking, what a loyal, what a loving, what a happy child I'm going to have. They're going to be so excited and so thankful. And then when we watch and we see those adopted children mistreat their parents, what does it provoke in you? And if it's short of anger... You're not righteous enough. Because you're not like the Lord. Did you see what it said about him? He abhorred them. He abhorred his own sons and his own daughters. Because when he looked for grapes, they brought forth wild grapes. The God of heaven, at this moment, is looking into every one of our hearts and measuring the love that we have toward him, the appreciation for every syllable of the King James Version, 
the love of the brethren sitting in the pews around you in response to all that he's done for you. And he's done so much, every one of you in here have a relatively good basis on which to say you're the most blessed man in the history of the world. And if you don't believe that, then you're not thinking right. And if you don't believe that because there are some problems in your life, I'll bet many of those problems are of your own doing. Because I will freely admit that the problems in my life are of my own doing. I messed up the vineyard. He didn't mess it up. What more could he have done? He did it all. The context of Isaiah 5 is very simple. God sent Isaiah, and I'm not going to go over it. I had comments to make on each chapter around Isaiah 5. But God sent Isaiah to warn Israel and to warn Judah especially that judgment was coming. As Jeremiah did and as Ezekiel did, Isaiah came first, Jeremiah came next, and then came Ezekiel in the chronology of the prophets as they warned Israel before God took them away. God took Israel away, the ten tribes, by the king of Assyria, and God took the two tribes away, Judah and Benjamin, by the king of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar of the Chaldeans. And this is one of the warnings. And this is a song. I will sing a song. God inspired Isaiah to to sing a song. You know, I sang a couple songs to you today. But they weren't as good as Isaiah's song in Isaiah 5. And they're not as good as Moses' song in Deuteronomy 32. Both of them were songs. And they're songs where God is pleading with His people, What more could I have done? Why do ye thus requite the Lord? Why are you treating me this way? And you parents that have adopted in this assembly, my heart goes out to you. My fury rests in my heart toward the way you were treated. And when I've had occasion, I've expressed it. My heart goes out to you. But all of us need to ask ourselves, what kind of adoptive children are we to the God of heaven who has adopted us at the price and expense of his own precious son? Are we good grapes or wild grapes? I hope you can understand the little parable here, the little metaphor. It's simple enough. Israel is the vineyard. God blessed them with the land of Canaan. God threw out seven nations and gave them everything. Hundreds of verses could be looked up to show you that. He said, I valued you so highly, I gave other men's lives for you. I gave other nations for you. I redeemed you by their price because I had them all annihilated. There were seven nations greater and mightier than Israel that were annihilated by the Jews as they took the land of Canaan. And Deuteronomy explains that. You were not the greatest of all nations. You were the least of all nations. But I replaced seven nations with you. And we took their houses, and we took their vineyards, their wells, and all their goodly furniture that they had. And I gave you a land flowing with milk and honey. And you just walked in and occupied it, and it took about five years. And they took the whole land. Seventy cities are listed by name. Seven nations are listed by name. God blessed Joshua to do that for the land of Israel. What more could he have done? They had the word of God. They had the tabernacle. They had a pillar of cloud. They had a pillar of fire. They had miracles. They had water coming out of rocks. They had manna coming down from heaven. What more could he have done? They had explained to them the creation of the world. They had explained to them the the flood, Noah's flood, that had drowned the entire population of the planet except for eight. They had commandments and laws given that no other nation had. They had righteous laws given that governed family life, civil life, church life, national life, financial dealings, 
Even taking care of birds' eggs in nests. What a law. They had the best of everything. Ah, but we have more. We have more. They got stuck with only 39 books of the Bible. And for much of their life, they only had five. And then they had ten. And at best, they only had 39. We have 66 books. Because we have the New Testament of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They had animal blood, and animal stink, and animal dung, and animal smoke. We have the prayer of saints that makes it all the way into heaven by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul would reason in Hebrews chapter 9, If the flesh of bulls and goats could sanctify to the purifying of their flesh, how much more should the blood of Christ purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? How much more? When we look at Israel and say, They are so bad. They were so rebellious. They were so stubborn. Generation after generation. Ah, we must look at home. We must look at our own hearts. Are we giving the Lord the due return that He expects from what He's done for us? He looked for grapes. Let's ask ourselves just a few questions. Does God have the right to look for grapes? When God plants the vineyard, does He have a right to expect grapes? The Lord hath made all things for Himself. Yea, even the wicked for the day of evil, yea, especially his children for his own glory and praise, which the rest of the Bible teaches after Proverbs 16.4. Yes, he has a right. Does he measure us? We're going to look at that in the Word of God. He does measure us. If we don't give him the happy, thankful, serving, sacrificing, loving, devoted, loyal, Service that we should, does he have a right to chasten us and tear his vineyard apart? Yes, he does. He's the God of glory, and every father has that right when he adopts, and he's treated that way by an adoptive children, and especially the God of heaven, and we already read it in Deuteronomy chapter 32. That is the lesson. God's choice to show kindness to Judah should have brought thankfulness and righteousness. That's the lesson. Well, that isn't very deep. Brother Crosby, no it isn't. Is it as deep as your heart? Because I want it past your mind. Is it in your heart that God's choice to show kindness to you should have brought thankfulness and righteousness? I say that living in the United States is better than living in Israel at any stage from a natural standpoint. I live better than Solomon lived. You say he had live music. I have better music. It's digital. I can play the same thing tomorrow that I heard yesterday and have it exactly the same. The lead singer doesn't get sick and can't show up. And I'm, I'm just chasing a little short rabbit. I want you to think about how much you're blessed. You want to travel? Do you know how he had to travel? You say, well, maybe he had a litter. You know, or or he was carried on poles by 12 strong men. Oh, what a nice ride. How fast could they go? Did he have a Speedo to check out his miles per hour? Think about anything natural or national or spiritual. We have more. We have more. Do you know how messed up his family life was? He says, I find more bitter than death the woman. As long as you've got a wife that's a little bit better than death, 
You're ahead of Solomon. We are blessed. You say, what about my children? Are your children worse than Rehoboam? What about the Word of God? How much did Solomon have? About 15 books? How many do you have? Praise the Lord. We are blessed. When he went into the house of the Lord, there was incense. It looked like a Catholic church. You know, the Catholic church is a combination of Judaism and paganism. They've mixed the two. They have their candles, they have their incense, and all, and they have gold. Solomon's temple had all those things. He went into a house that looked like a Catholic church, or a cathedral. It was better than an ordinary church. Do you know where we get to go? The temple of the living God. Do you know who's walking around this golden candlestick? And you can't see the burning candlestick. But do you know who's walking around it? The Son of Man. Praise the Lord! Where do I go? What else do I say to you? We are blessed abundantly. Do you have a converted wife? You're ahead of Solomon. Do you know what he had to do for his wives? Do you know what he had to do when they said, we want to go to our church? Do you know the Bible tells us all this? He had to build temples where their children were offered in sacrifice. He built temples to Molech for the sake of his wives so that they could take his children to that Sunday school. And that Sunday school, they didn't come home from it. Praise the Lord, we've got so much. Blessed Father, there's nothing more you could have done to this vineyard. Nothing more. Every bitter taste that you've ever had is entirely my fault and not yours. There's nothing more you could have done. You pulled the stones out of my life, and I had many, and I've had many, and I've gone and found extras to put in there, but you pulled them out of my life. You put me in a choice hill. I'm thankful for my wife. I'm thankful for my children. Are they work sometimes? Oh, it's so comforting to study a passage like this. And the work towards your children becomes quite light. Do you know why? Because all I can look at is, what more could have been done to my vineyard, Jonathan Crosby? (laughs) And then all of a sudden, it's pretty easy to work on Daniel Crosby. Not that you need it any more than the other six, son. I just, you were there. It becomes so easy. Sherry and I have just had an extended time talking about it. The things that tire us, the things that disappoint us, the things that frustrate us. And we would just keep coming back to this. How tired, how disappointed, and how frustrated is the God of heaven with you and me? And we would start listing those things. And all of a sudden, where are the kids? Bring the worst one first. We just want to hug them. Because compared to what we've done to the Lord, it's easy. I hope you're all with me. When an investment is made, and God has made a great investment in you, a return is expected. God had invested, and Israel didn't return much. When a man is favored, appreciation and loyalty is expected. How much more toward God? When you, when you do something to help another man get promoted, or you promote him very high, you expect a little bit of loyalty and friendship and thanksgiving out of that man for doing that for him. And when it doesn't come, it's very disappointing and and irritating. The Lord's done it for us. What are we giving Him? When countless blessings are given to the unworthy, what should the unworthy do to his benefactor? He should want to write him a thank you card every single day. How do we write the Lord a thank you card? We give thanks with the praise of our lips. 
We thank Him in private. We thank Him in public. We sing praise to His name. We can do that. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 4. Let's go and start looking at some other scriptures. We will not be long today. We don't need to be long. Length is not the value of a sermon. The value of a sermon, which I can't create, is God the Holy Spirit convicting you about the lesson of the sermon. And the lesson of the sermon is, what more could I have done to my vineyard than was done? So that when I looked for grapes, it brought forth wild grapes. What have I done wrong? Why do ye thus requite me, O foolish and unwise children? Why are you treating me this way? We want to ask ourselves exactly what does that mean and find an answer. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 5. The first 13 verses or so, 14 verses, 16 verses, are about the treatment of widows in a church that have need of the support of the church. Verse 4 says, If any widow have children or nephews, those are converted children or nephews in the church, let them learn first to show piety at home and to requite their parents, for that is good and acceptable before God. Notice, we have, a, we have a definition in the Bible. I love it when the Bible gives us a definition of a word. You can figure out the word requite in this verse, can't you? You know that it means to repay. Because children and nieces and nephews ought to repay the favors that they were shown while they were growing up from infancy to their aged parents. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God. This is a good thing. This is an acceptable thing. It's a basic thing that we should take care of our parents who took care of us when we were young. If a widow have children or nephews, let them learn first to show piety at home and to requite their parents. Before the church starts to show piety or holiness or a very sincere level of religion by supporting a widow fully, let the children do it. Let the nieces and nephews do it. Verse 8, what if they don't do it? But if any provide not for his own, meaning his aged parents or aunts and uncles, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Do you know what the point is I want from these two verses? Even infidels understand a basic law of nature that children owe their parents care in their older years because of the care they got in their younger years. Even infidels know that who do not know the God of heaven. So first of all, it's, we're told that the God of heaven considers it good and acceptable, verse 4. Then we're told that if you don't do it, you're worse than an infidel because at least they figured that out. They know they ought to take care of their parents. I could illustrate it with a conversation I had this past week that Sherry and I had this past while we were gone with a, with a poor woman from a poor part of China about this very fact. And what a burden it was. She's 32 years of age. What a burden it was upon her to want to be able to help her parents because of the help she had when she was young. Infidels know it. She didn't know anything about Jesus Christ. Infidels know it. But do we know it? Do we know it? And for I'm not talking about taking care of our aged parents right now. I'm talking about taking care of the God of heaven who's adopted us. Do we understand that law as much as they do in carnal things? Do we understand it in spiritual things? Look at Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. This is a common theme by the prophets to get the attention of Israel and Judah. A common way of getting their attention was to point out the good things God had done for them and then to ask them, are you giving back to Him in proportion to what He gave to you? 
Are we? We must constantly be asking, am I good grapes or wild grapes? Am I a good adopted child or a so-so adopted child? Do I thrill my adoptive father every day? Do I thrill him? Do I go running into his arms and hug him tightly and say, thank you so much for adopting me? Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. That is unbelievable. We were the children of wrath even as others. Do you run into his arms and tell him? Do you go into his library and pull off one of the books, one of the love letters that he wrote you, and read it and delight in its words? Do you sing praise to him because he has said, I like singing. I like singing. So do you give it to him? When he says, I want you to get along well with all the other children, does that make you a peacemaker? And do you go after others to have a close relationship with them? And to build up the family of God that He's put you in contact with so that your adoptive father is thankful at the dinner table, the Lord's Supper, there is a happy family where all the children love each other. Are you with me? What good grapes are and what wild grapes are. If you have a no-care attitude about the rest of the church, if you have a bored attitude about coming to this assembly today, God have mercy on your foolish and unwise soul because Deuteronomy 32 is going to come to pass in your life in a way that you do not want it to come to pass. If you were excited about being here today, and thank you, Lord, for putting that excitement in my heart because by nature I wouldn't be able to generate it myself. But you've put it in my heart and I thank you for it and I pray for you to stir it up even more and more. Blessings will come. Blessings will come. He deserves it all. What greater object of your excitement? I have a king I can tell you about that's better than King LeBron. Most of you don't even know what I'm talking about. That makes me very happy. But most of the United States is worshiping King LeBron. Sorry, Francis. She gives herself away by her. She's like me. It show if it's there, it shows. LeBron James is arguably one of the best players in the NBA in the, in the National Basketball Association, and they're having their cha- their playoff games right now, leading to a championship. And most of the nation is worshiping LeBron. They call him the King, King James, which gets me a little irritated. Because this is my King James Bible, and that pagan doesn't have anything to do with it. But they're excited about their king. And you know, they get into their houses of worship, and they go, they, they stop, the place is shaken to its core. I read an article yesterday about the Coliseum in Cleveland that in the second game, he won it with a 23-foot shot at the buzzer, one second left in the clock, didn't have time to do anything but turn and shoot, won the game with a three-pointer, they won by one point, they were down by two, they won the last second, The place was shaken to its core, and I tell you all of that for this purpose only. I wish we would shake this place to its core with our love of the God of heaven and the love of our King, Jesus Christ the righteous, and with our love of each other. They punch the air. They shout. They paint themselves. They pierce themselves. They'll pay great prices to get in. And yet we begrudge the Lord a little bit of time. What is wrong? What more could I have done to my vineyard that you can't get as excited about me as they get excited about LeBron James? A tattooed pagan. 
What more could have been done to my vineyard that was not done? For those of you who know anything and follow spectator sports at all, may the truth of my questions grip you. Is your zeal and love and excitement and devotion and attention and affection for the God of heaven greater than anything you would ever show toward them? Let that be our judge. Let that be our judge. Isaiah chapter 1, look at it. This was used commonly by the prophets. Verse 1, chapter 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Listen. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. Does that sound like Moses from Deuteronomy 32? He's calling heaven and earth two witnesses. He's calling two witnesses to what he's about to say to Israel. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib. But Israel doth not know, my people doth not consider. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers. Children that are corruptors, they have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They are gone away backward. Notice here a couple more metaphors. Here's a, here is a, the adoptive father illustration I've given you numerous times already today. In Isaiah 5, it's a vineyard with wild grapes. Here, it's a child that has been nourished and brought up and ends up rebelling against his father. These children that rebel against us, they do not understand the pain, and they will not until they have their own children, will they? You can't even see any recognition of it because there is no recognition of it. They are too ignorant, too foolish, too immature, too stupid, too depraved to even grasp the concept of rebellion against them after 20 years of nourishing and bringing up children. And it grieves us. We can't even explain it to them. All we can hope is that someday... When they have children that rebel against them, they may get a little light go on inside if God is merciful to them, and they come running home to apologize to their parents for what they did. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. I know all about the verse. Being the rebellious child. The ox knoweth his owner. Do you know a dumb ox? You know a castrated former bull, if its owner goes out into a pasture where, or, or into a barn where there's a bunch of oxen, that oxen knows his master. He knows its owner. He will not treat any other man the same way. You don't want to get too close to an ox unless you're its owner. And that ox knows you. The ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib. An ass. Yes, that's what we are. We're an ass. We're worse than an ass, because an ass knows his master's crib, but sometimes we don't know where we're fed. We think that we're going to get fed by the world, and so we go looking and scrounging around in the pig pen of this world to get fed when it's our master's crib that will feed us and the only food that will satisfy. The ass knows his master's crib. Even an ass, which is a very stubborn and ignorant animal that God created, and praises and ridicules at various times throughout the Bible, even an ass knows where it gets fed. It knows its master's corn crib. 
It knows where to go to get fed. Do we know where to go to get fed? This is the word of the Lord. You know, the Bible says that a foolish son is the calamity of his father. Are we the calamity of our father? Do you know what the Bible did to children who even set light by their parents? Death. Do we set light by God? Do we lightly esteem His assemblies? Do we barely make it here? Do we make it here with begrudging hearts? I want to commend three families that I know about that have a vacation plan started commencing today and that are sitting among you. That does not mean that I'm in the least bit upset with those who aren't here today because they started their vacation several days ago or yesterday. But there are three families here that I happen to know about that I just want to commend. And if you're doing it with a joyful heart today, may God bless you and may God make your vacation spectacular. It's, it's your level of excitement and zeal toward Him. If we lightly esteem God, He'll lightly esteem us. He deserves more than lightly, being lightly esteemed. Even an ass knows. But Israel doth not know. My people doth not consider. And the Lord says that to you and to me. My people do not consider. I'm their food. I'm their owner. I'm their father. Take all three metaphors and add them together, and he's still greater. Because he's also the vineyard owner, the well-beloved, that planted the most precious vineyard that he could. Look at Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2. Just for a few more minutes before our break. Jeremiah chapter 2. The whole chapter is wonderful. The whole chapter. Notice that this... In reading Deuteronomy 32, did you come across the words where their wine... And their vineyard and their grapes are like the grapes of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's a wild grape. See, that, that idea, that metaphor of a vineyard bringing forth bad grapes that wouldn't make good wine and wouldn't make glad the heart of God. Yes, the Bible talks about wine making glad the heart of God. Those bad grapes that wouldn't do that, that's used in Deuteronomy 32. It's used in Isaiah 5 where I've taken you. What more could have been done for my vineyard that was not done? And it's also used right here in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 21. Let's go to verse 20 so we get the context. Of old time I have broken thy yoke. Did the Egyptians have the Israelites in a yoke? Were they treated like animals? For of old time I have broken thy yoke and burst thy bands. And thou saidst, I will not transgress. They started off great. When upon every high hill and under every green tree thou wanderest, playing the harlot, yet I had planted thee a noble vine, holy a ripe seed, how then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? Why do you treat me like a stranger? You don't even look like the vine that I planted. You don't look like the vine that I cultivated. What kind of a vine are you? You look like a degenerate vine. What happened? I broke your yoke. I took the bands away. I blessed you. I gave you freedom. He gave us freedom from death, hell, sin, and the devil. Look what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. So Jeremiah says it. You read it also in Ezekiel. That Ezekiel took, Ezekiel described the Lord God of heaven finding a little brand new born baby that had been discarded, thrown out in a junk heap, in its own blood. Its navel hadn't been cut. Its umbilical cord was still hanging on to that ugly placenta. Sorry, ladies, if you thought it was pretty. It was uncut. It was unsalted. It was a mess. I didn't mean that disrespectfully at all about childbirth, but it isn't pretty. That child was there. And the Lord came by and said, live. 
And do you know what the Bible says? It was a time of love. Using our language, the Lord fell in love with that little baby. The Lord took that little baby, cut its cord, cleaned it up, salted it, wrapped it up, took it home, held it, loved it, fed it. It grew up into a beautiful woman. He designed beautiful hair for her, beautiful voluptuous breasts, until she was fashioned as a beautiful woman. This is a picture of Israel. Then that beautiful woman, that is a metaphor for Israel and Judah, went and took her beauty and played the harlot with Egyptians and with Assyrians. Meaning that Israel went and worshipped the gods of Egypt and worshipped the gods of Assyria. But to make the point as powerful as possible, the Lord refers to spiritual adultery under the terms and metaphor of a real adultery. To get our attention. And you read Ezekiel 16, you get angry. What a wicked, wicked daughter. Being found by the Lord like that and then playing with the world. Do you know what the Bible tells about us? We are the enemies of God when we are the friends of the world. If the world's music, if the world's entertainment, if the world's people, if the world's ideas, if the world itself, if your job, if those things encroach upon your love of God, then you are an enemy of God and God is your enemy. Because you are committing spiritual adultery. That's what James 4.4 4 is all about. When it says ye adulterers and adulteresses, it's not talking about literal, physical, under the sheets adultery. It's talking about spiritual adultery of being a friend with the world because the verse tells us that. So Ezekiel 16 ta- taught us the same thing. Look at Malachi chapter 1, last book in the Old Testament. They didn't get it until a few hundred years before Matthew wrote the Gospel of Matthew. Malachi, the last book, the 39th book of the Old Testament. Notice the reasoning here. This lesson that God gave was repeated by the prophets over and over to get the attention of Israel and Judah and thereby to get our attention. Because the things that happened to them were written for our learning and our instruction. And they are our example. Malachi chapter 1, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. This isn't God's burden against Babylon. This isn't God's burden against Nineveh. This is God's burden against Israel. This is the fault that he is finding with Israel. Verse 2. I have loved you, saith the Lord. Are there adoptive parents in here who have ever told their adoptive children, we love you? Are there biological parents in here who have told their children, we love you? The little brats called Israel said back, Yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Show me. How have you loved me? Ungrateful, spoiled, wicked brats. Israel and us. If we don't give him all that he's due. I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Look at the Lord's response. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom saith, those are the descendants of Esau, that was the nation that was formed from him. Whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished. It's true that we're not in very good shape right now, and they weren't in very good shape because God had torn them up. We are impoverished, but we will return 
and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, they shall build, but I will throw down. And they shall call them the border of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. When the Lord God walked into the orphanage of mankind, He chose you out of it and paid for you by the precious blood of His own Son, and He loved you, and He hated the rest. That is the doctrine that we believe. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Psalm 5.5 The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. But He loved us. He loved Jacob. He hated Esau. Esau had a heritage. God gave him a part of the world in which his descendants could live. But God pounded him and destroyed him with Nebuchadnezzar. God raised up Nebuchadnezzar to do more than just punish Israel. God also raised up Nebuchadnezzar to punish Edom. And he did. And they were impoverished. And they knew it. But they said, we're going to return and we're going to rebuild. And God said, you may rebuild, but I'm going to tear it down again. But when Israel returned, God was with them. And their rebuilding efforts were paid for by Cyrus the Persian. And then Artaxerxes the Persian. Verse 5, And your eyes shall see, and ye shall say, The Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. That is what we should be looking for, are the borders God has made in our lives. Some of you were plucked out of families where no one else fears the Lord. Malachi 1 was written about you. I mean, it was written about all of us, but some of you are, are unique. Forgive my expression, but you're freaks of nature. Do you know why I say that? Because it's a spiritual thing God's done for you. It is so contrary to nature. That's why I said it that way. I hope you understand it. Lord, I don't mean any sacrilege by that statement, but you have done some things that are marvelous. And they're before our eyes. The Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. Some of your lives have a border around it that you cross that border into other family members. There is a stark difference. Who made that difference? Who made the difference between Jacob and Esau? God did. And God was going to be perpetually angry against the descendants of Edom. You know, I've heard somebody say, well, when the Bible says that God loved Jacob and hated Esau, that was just two men. And so you can't apply that to the rest. Well, Malachi chapter 1 says it was every descendant that came out of Esau against the people whom he hath indignation forever. The borders of Israel. Do you have borders in your life? Is there, you know, there are borders of our nation that you cross the border and the the lifestyle is very, very different. There are borders in big cities where you cross a street and the lifestyle is very, very different. Are there borders in your life where if you cross that border, things are very different? Are you thankful for that border? Do you know who made that border in your life? The God of heaven. Your heavenly father made that border. He deserves everything we can give him. In verse 6, a son honoreth his father. A good son, properly, should, ideally, usually, a son honoreth his father. A servant, usually, properly, expectantly, honors his master. If I then be a father, where is mine honor? Is he our father? He is. Does he have all our honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? Where is the respect for me that you have toward masters on earth that simply use you 
to make more. Saith the Lord of hosts unto you, O priests that despise my name, please follow me. And with this point we end from Malachi 1. O priests that despise my name, and ye say, wherein have we despised thy name? We don't despise your name. Quit accusing us of despising your name. The Lord has said, O priests that despise my name. Verse 7. Ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar. And ye say, Wherein have we polluted thee? Wherein have we despised thy name? In that ye say, In offering polluted bread, in offering less than the best, you are saying something to me. The table of the Lord is contemptible. I hope that no one in here could say the worship of God is contemptible. But if you don't prepare, if you don't pray for it, if you don't participate where you can and where you should, in private, in public, up front or not up front, if you don't do those things, you are saying in that, in those actions, in that attitude, you are saying The worship of God is contemptible. That's the lesson of Malachi 1. In that, in that you don't bring your best, you are saying that you despise the name of God. You are saying the worship of God is contemptible. It's disgusting. You are saying that when you bring less than your best. Verse 8, if ye offer the blind for sacrifice... You know, they'd look in their flocks and find a blind sheep. And they'd take a blind sheep and give it to the Lord. Is it not evil? Isn't that a horrible thing when you bring less than your best? And every one of you that doze or daydream or sleep in church, you're bringing the blind. Because your eyes and your ears are closed. Let me run the metaphor in that direction. You're blind. I look out there and your eyes are closed. You're blind. I look out there and your eyes are glassy. I look out there and your eyes are looking down because you don't want to hear the truth because the worship of God is contemptible to you. In that, you are saying to God, I despise your name. He will have the last laugh about your life. If ye offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? We know that it's evil. And if ye offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? We know that it's evil to give such things to God. Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee? Or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts. Try it on your governor and see if he will accept less than your best. Try to sit in the governor's office and stare at the floor or read your Bible or look at a hymn book. He'll throw you out on your ear where you belong and he'll have the street sweeper come along, sweep you up, put you in a trash truck and take you to a landfill. Try it on your governor. You say, well, our governor wouldn't do that. That's because he's effeminate compared to the governors of the Bible. The last verse of this chapter, that, that same thought continues right down through Malachi chapter 1. And it ends up with, Cursed be the deceiver, which hath in his flock a male, and voweth, and sacrificeth unto the Lord a corrupt thing. For I am a great king, saith the Lord of hosts, and my name is dreadful among the heathen. You know, there was a prophecy given in verse 11 that the Gentiles would treat God a whole lot better than the Jews had. It's a wonderful prophecy in verse 11. He repeats it here in the last part of verse 14. 
But there's a curse upon every deceiver that comes into the house of God and pretends that they love God and they're not bringing their very best. Your very best is reading the Word of God daily. Your very best is praying daily. Your very best is preparing for this assembly. Your very best is coming with an excited and ready heart to worship God with all your might. Your very best is to listen attentively. That is your very best. When you bring less than the best, you're under a curse and you're a deceiver. You're trying to pretend you're something that you're not. The Lord deserves our very best. For I am a great king. saith the Lord of hosts. Cursed be the deceiver. If we have not given him our best, that's the point today. Let's give him our best. For those of you that strive to give him your best, let me tell you this. He accepts far less than perfection because he's full of long-suffering and mercy. He is so full of long-suffering and mercy. Don't you worry. Just come with the best that you can give him, your reasonable service, and he'll make up the rest in what the Lord Jesus Christ did on your behalf. The Lord Jesus Christ knew how to worship perfectly, and he'll make up all the gaps, all the holes. He'll, he'll wash away the spots on your garment as long as you're making a sincere, dedicated effort to give him your best. What more could have been done to my vineyard? Nothing. I look for grapes. Brethren, let's give him sweet grapes. Let him look upon us and say, I am a father. And look at how much they love their adoptive father. I can't believe those children down there in Greenville. They love me so much. They're talking about me all the time. Write their names in my book of remembrance. They know where they're fed. They always come to me and they always thank me for every good thing they have. They know their owner's crib. They give me the reverence and respect that I deserve because I'm a great king. They do bring their best. They're not perfect, but I left them down there. I gave them their abilities and I withheld abilities from them, but they're giving me their best. Their singing isn't always perfect. Sometimes they don't get the four parts. Sometimes they don't, aren't too melodious, but they're giving me their best. I love it. I love it. Bless that church down there in Greenville. Bless each of your families and bless each of your souls. Brother Matthew, come and lead us, please.